This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Everyone will experience depressive symptoms at one time or another, especially as a result or as a consequence from an identifiable stressor. So job loss, relationship loss, any sort of kind of life stressor that's going on, we're supposed to feel depressed sometimes. That's just, that's part of human nature. When it gets into trouble is when it becomes pervasive and functionally impairing and, and super distressing. And so then at some point it can cross a line into a clinical or psychiatric disorder. Welcome to Wellness, Fact versus Fiction. I'm Dr. Danielle Bellardo, and I'm a cardiologist who loves evidence-based medicine and nutrition science. But as a millennial, I've watched endless wellness fads take over social media. It's my mission to get to the bottom of things by bringing on the top expert physicians and scientists to help us determine what is fact versus fiction when it comes to your health. It's time to leave the pseudoscience behind and become empowered when it comes to our wellness. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of Wellness Fact versus Fiction. This week, we have a highly requested topic, which is mental health. So we brought in an expert who can help us dig in, and that is Dr. Jonathan Steya, a registered and practicing clinical psychologist and adjunct assistant professor at the University of Calgary. Clinically, he specializes in the assessment and treatment of concurrent addictive and psychiatric disorders. He's interested in topics related to science communication and health misinformation in popular media, especially with respect to addiction and mental health. He's a coalition member of Science Up First, which is a Canadian anti-misinformation social media initiative that creates, distributes, and amplifies best-in-class science-informed content. He is a co-editor of the forthcoming book, Investigating Clinical Psychology, Pseudoscience, Fringe Science, and Controversies, out in 2023. During this episode, we discuss the most evidence-based ways to treat both depression and anxiety. He discusses different options ranging from medical therapy like SSRIs and different kinds of therapy treatments such as cognitive behavioral therapy. He also even digs into the data on exercise and depression. This episode is not to be missed. Let's get to it. Hi, everyone. Today, we are with the wonderful Dr. Jonathan Steya, and I am so excited to bring him for everyone on the podcast to learn about all things mental health and answer your most common questions about some of the myths in mental health and the misinformation in the wellness space. So welcome, Dr. Steya. Thank you for joining us today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of you and of your podcast. I just love the title of it, Wellness, you know, Fact versus Fiction. I just love how you're, you know, the the wellness industry has co-opted that term and you're taking it back. And I just love that. We are all taking it back. We were just chatting before we jumped on recording about how pervasive the misinformation in the wellness space is about psych info, about psychiatric disorders, about psych treatment. And so we have so much to dig deep into today. And I think that it's really going to provide a refreshing view for anyone who either has struggled with mental health or who knows someone that's struggled with mental health and that is looking for solutions. At the end of the day, a lot of what this podcast is, is discussing evidence-based solutions and 
you know, arming our listeners with the ability to advocate for themselves and find solutions for them that are based in science rather than, you know, some of the unfortunate misinformation out there that's predatory and preying on people looking for help. So tell everyone about you. Give everyone a brief overview about you and what you do um, in your own words. I'd love for everyone to hear from you. Totally. Thank you for that. So I'm a clinical psychologist. That's the that's my profession. It means I wear many hats. So uh, my day job is a clinician. So I work in a hospital setting. It's called an outpatient concurrent disorders clinic. And so what that means is the mandate of the clinic is that we accept or help people who experience concurrent addictive and psychiatric disorders, also concurrent with other medical problems or conditions, like chronic pain or, or chronic uh, disease. But the, the main mandate is, is concurrent addictive and psychiatric disorders. Uh, it's the, the clinic works in the context of a really wonderful interdisciplinary team. So I'm a clinical psychologist. There's other clinical psychologists on the team. We also have psychiatrists. We have addiction medicine physicians. We have nurse practitioners. We have social workers, nurses, and occupational therapists. We all kind of work together collaboratively to provide assessment services um, to try to really figure out differential diagnoses and what's going on. We And then we provide case management and therapy for, for folks, both psychotherapy and pharmacological therapy. Basically, what the psychotherapy looks like is individual therapy so that I would have a, a, case, a caseload with my own patients. And I also co-facilitate a variety of group therapy programs as well. I supervise uh, students and residents from various disciplines. That's one of my a passion of mine. That's what the clinical day-to-day -day looks like. And then also academically, I have an appointment as an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Calgary in the Department of Psychology. So there I get the privilege of sitting almost at the forefront of research because I, I sit indefinitely on these master's and dissertation committees. So I get to watch uh, students and uh, with their, their wonderful uh, research that they're doing. So I do that and I have my hands in uh, research endeavors as well. Um, one of my other passions is I'm currently co-editing an upcoming book on pseudoscience in clinical psychology. So that's wow. another passion of mine. Yeah, co-edited co with Dr. Stephen Hub. Wow, that is exciting. Needed. Totally. Needed. Totally needed. And it, it's such a, it's a passion project. We have an all-star lineup of contributors. So I'm happy to promote that when it's time. It's still about a year or two away. And what else? I guess also academically, you know, I, another passion would be science communication, which is, you know, what you do as well. And uh, in that capacity, I like, um, I'm a member, a coalition member of Science Up First, which is a, a Canadian in initiative. It's the brainchild of uh, Professor Timothy Caulfield and Senator Stanley Kutcher, who's a psychiatrist. Love, love Tim Caulfield. Yeah, incredible. And, and we're, that's what Science Up First is. It's scienceupfirst.com. And uh, basically, it's an, a social media anti-misinformation campaign. It really focused on the pandemic and COVID-19 recently, but we're actually broadening our scope. And it will include things like mental health misinformation going forward. Well, you know who to come to if you need someone to talk about all the LDL misinformation out there. It's you're, my... our, you're our go-to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so speaking about your your entire great presence on social media, your scientific communication, and the way you have kind of joined into this fight with against misinformation, how did that start? Um, how did you actually end up getting interested in that? And you know, we were talking right before we started recording about how 
I really am so excited to see an uptick in the interest in evidence-based medicine and evidence-based healthcare. Um, I'm finding more and more uh, multiple, you know, um, whether it's medical students, physicians, nurses, registered dietitians, and patients, individuals are actually really starting to question some of the various uh, headline, you know, clickbait health claims or um, some of the BS we see on Instagram. And so how did you get into just demystifying this health misinformation? What made you pursue that? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's not going anywhere. Social media is obviously here to stay. And we know that people are getting their news from that or, and their, their information. So yeah, it's important to bring new science communicators in the field. How did I start? I started, I suppose, several years ago. My research interests as uh, and doing my doctoral dissertation work, my, my initial kind of foray in the science communication one was about cannabis and cannabis addiction. So that's kind of where I started. So I was writing op-eds and articles uh, in that capacity, kind of debunking myths about uh, cannabis and its use and whether it's helpful or harmful for mental health, whether addiction, cannabis addiction exists and things like that. And so I started writing articles and op-eds about that and kind of posting it online and I guess started paying attention more to social media and to Twitter, uh, especially and Instagram. And as I did that, I was just jaw dropped at the sheer misinformation that we were witnessing, especially in the realm of mental health. It was just stunning to me, to be frank. And then at the same time, also noticing that there was such a wonderful science communication community, like yourself, Timothy Caulfield, Dr. Jennifer Gunter, like so many wonderful people that have their own kind of niche areas and they're they're similarly debunking. Uh, misinformation. And so I just found that it was, it had such a, a different kind of reach than, you know, the, the silos of academia does. And oh, true. It, yeah, it's, it's just, that's where people go. And so I, I suppose that's where I started witnessing a lot of it happening. And that kind of gauged my interest. And then of course, the pandemic just blew it out of the water. So the pandemic happened, and then it just catalyzed well, I guess misinformation in general, but also I think it catalyzed that sort of ethical duty that health professionals and scientists feel to display their expertise and to, and to debunk misinformation. So we've joined that community. And I think it's a really great thing because we need to drown out that incessant misinformation noise that is just rampant, especially on Twitter, especially on Instagram and TikTok. Looking at the way social media and scientific communication is, uh, Twitter specifically, when it comes to cardiology, I can speak for, uh, and I think most different areas of medicine, you know, there's a lot of fantastic scientific communication between doctors to other doctors. And so while physicians and scientists and PhDs are there on Twitter, you know, sharing their interpretations of p-values and confidence intervals and having this rich discussion, Unfortunately, there's this lack of a huge presence of that being translated to the general public. And where the communication is happening to the general public are the people who are not attending those conferences, are the people who are not following evidence-based medicine. You know, you look at the, some of the accounts with the largest followings who may have an MD or a PhD after their name, and they're not tweeting the latest guidelines from the American College of Cardiology or the American Psychological Association, 
they are sharing a infographic with some catchy headline about how you just need to exercise and eat well and your depression will go away. You know what I mean? And so it's, I do feel like I want this podcast to, you know, serve as a kind of a bridge between the people who are uh, giving us great information about p-values and confidence intervals and also kind of bring that in a patient digestible manner so people listening can understand. And so you do a great job of that. You do a great job of bridging that gap of communication of the really science heavy to the general public. And you do a phenomenal job of of really uh, bridging that gap, especially in, in psych. So thank you. And so starting with uh, some of the questions from our listeners, because there's so many amazing topics and there's so many kind of frightening claims made on social media about mental health. Um, And so could you actually just give everyone uh, just a broad overview, um, starting with one of the most common, what is depression? How is it diagnosed? And uh, what do we know about the evidence-based treatments for depression? For sure. And I'd like to say thank you so much for those kind words as well. It's as as you well know, it's not an easy thing to do, but it's it's such an important thing to do. And it can invite a lot of harassment and trolling and things like that. And so totally. um, but it's well worth it. And I think the more voices, the merrier. So anyways, I really appreciate that. That's a really yeah. uh, meaningful thing to say. Um, but yeah, back to depression. Yeah, depression's an umbrella term, right? Like we hear it colloquially all the time. It can mean many different things. I, I, I think the easiest way to start with it is to think that depression can be identified as a cluster of symptoms. So chronic sadness or, or persistent sadness. There's something called anhedonia, which means lack of interest or, or pleasure in doing things. There's feelings of emptiness. There's difficulties in concentration, mood difficulties. Um, sleep difficulties, changes in appetite. And I think it's important to understand that depressive symptoms are a very normal part of human experience. Everyone will experience depressive symptoms at one time or another, especially as a result or as a consequence from an identifiable stressor. So job loss, relationship loss, any sort of kind of life stressor that's going on, we're supposed to feel depressed sometimes. That's just, that's part of human nature. When it gets into trouble is when it becomes pervasive and functionally impairing and and super distressing. And so then at some point it can cross a line into a clinical or psychiatric disorder. And so that's sort of what we look for when we do diagnostic interviews and use um, standardized tools to kind of help us assess, is someone kind of meeting diagnostic criteria for a depressive disorder? And depressive symptoms can show up in a number of different psychiatric disorders. So the one that is usually, the term depression, again, is an umbrella term. The one that is most typically conflated with, I would say, is something called major depressive disorder, which is sort of a a depressive episode where those uh, symptoms um, manifest themselves. And um, it can be obviously quite debilitating. But depressive symptoms can, can show up in other ways. Their psychiatric disorder is called depressive, persistent depressive disorder, which is kind of going on for a longer time. It can show up in bipolar disorder. It can show up as sequela of psychotic disorders. Uh, in my clinic, we see this all the time. There can be substance-induced depressive disorders because a lot of various 
substances or addiction itself can kind of mimic depressive symptoms. So those are some of the things that we're trying to look for when we do a differential diagnosis. In terms of evidence-based treatment, there are psychotherapy approaches and there's pharmacological approaches. When you look at, I know that um, that you and your podcast and, you know, what the mandate is evidence-based medicine. And that's what we look for. We look, we look to clinical guidelines because clinical guidelines are the culmination of evidence-based practice. They're, they're drawing from many different uh, studies of high quality journals, high quality um, studies to basically derive these guidelines. And so when you look at that, when you look at clinical guidelines across mental health disciplines, so across clinical psychology and across psychiatry, they do tend to kind of converge. So super nuanced, complicated. And even I, as a physician, uh, clearly not trained in psych at all, even for me, like just hearing you talk about it as it's an umbrella term and all the subsets of it, I like don't have a true appreciation for that because I, you know, obviously defer to psych experts such as yourself. But it's so important and nuanced, like you're mentioning. Um, I'm actually almost feeling like silly asking the question, you know, can you define uh, depression? Considering that would be like someone saying to me, you know, can you just define, you know, one part of hyperlipidemia? And it's just, it, it is, it's so much more complicated and nuanced. So I'm, I really appreciate you breaking it down for us. Totally. It's, it's a fantastic question because that's how we do speak about it colloquially. And that's how it shows up on social media and things like that. But yes, it's important to highlight it is a nuanced thing. And that's what we need to talk about yeah. it, 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 with respect to its nuance. So yeah, the nature of depression is such that it's nuanced and can show up in various disorders. With respect to treatment, it's also important to view it across the lifespan because various it, treatment could look differently for child and adolescents versus adults versus older adults. And so that's another layer of complexity. And I don't want to step sort of beyond my scope of practice because my area is, is the adult population. So I'll kind of stick to that, but it's important to recognize that there, there can be differences. And so when you look to the evidence-based guidelines, it's basically uh, that the first line evidence-based treatment is offering psychotherapy or so evidence-based psychotherapy, and there's, there's a couple of them, or second-generation antidepressants, which are SSRIs and SNRIs. And so that's typically what is offered. So either standalone or combined. There's so much fear-mongering on social media about SSRIs. Um, and there's so much minimalization of psychiatric issues in general. It's so, so heartbreaking on social media, how people can just minimize uh, depression treatment on social media in an infographic as simple as, well, just eat well and exercise and get sunlight. I mean, which is ridiculous and your depression will go away, you know? And so, yeah, I would love for you to explain, you know, more into the evidence-based guideline reasons why these are recommended and why depression isn't as simple as just eat more fruits, vegetables, and work out and you'll cure your depression. Because that that really is stigmatizing. And that really does, I think, um, instill in a lot of people a feeling of it's their fault that they have depression and it's not their fault. No, totally. And it it drives me nuts, to be honest, the way that you're speaking about it. But yeah. I think in part, that's it's driven because depression is kind of that umbrella term. I think that's right. part of it. So again, we can all experience depressive symptoms at one, right. one time. So if you break up with your 
you know, you're in high school or, you, or even a young adult or any any part in, in your lifespan, you, you say you have a job loss, you you break up with a a partner, then you're again, you're supposed to feel depressed. And and yeah, things like exercise and, and diet and, and whatnot, they certainly can be helpful. But that's that's also a very different thing than a, a bona fide psychiatric disorder where people may be doing those things anyway and still experiencing symptoms. And you're right, it can lead to a lot of stigmatization of people who experience mental illness and their treatments, because there is a lot of stigma towards psychiatric medications as well. And it can lead to a lot of patient blaming, um, which is a very horrible thing, because of course, people who experience depression would love to quote unquote, snap out of it, or have a quick fix and just eat well and sleep well and exercise and then wash their hands and walk away. They would all do it if that were the case, but that's, that's not the case, right? And so I guess back, back to your question, the first line treatments, again, are psychotherapy, and they are pharmacological therapy, which is your SSRIs and SNRIs. The, the good news is that it, it can work, but the bad news, so to speak, is that it doesn't work for everyone. And that's also kind of a reality. So we know, don't quote me on the exact numbers, but I would say something like with respect to SSRIs, it's about 40 to 50% of people won't respond. So that's a big that's a big chunk of people that do and, and benefit from it, but then also a big chunk that won't. And so in those cases, what it suggests is probably the need for a medication switch into another SSRI or another SNRI, um, and perhaps even a psychotherapy switch. And so I think also baked into these clinical guidelines and these evidence-based guidelines is something that I've heard you talk about even on your last podcast um, with Derek Barris on the conspirituality stuff. But basically the whole idea of evidence-based medicine is that delicate balance between the three pillars, right? Your evidence base, your clinical judgment, and your, your patient preferences. And so when we get someone who is, I guess, not responding to treatment, that's where shared decision-making essentially comes in between patient and and treatment provider, whoever that is. And so that's why it is sort of this ongoing thing, navigating a treatment plan in the context of the evidence base and knowing that it could be a fluid or changing process. What's the efficacy of, of treatment of depression, of the combination of someone doing therapy plus an SSRI? Um, does that improve the likelihood of achieving remission or an improvement in symptoms? It's a great question. And yeah, you, you would think they would. And there is some evidence that they can. So for example, a combination of, say, CBT and an SSRI um, has been shown to have improved symptoms over the standalone treatments for specific disorders, for example, major depression or major depressive disorder and panic disorder um, and, say, OCD. But again, it's a layered, it's a layered topic because I think it also involves that shared decision-making because there also can be side effects associated with mm -hmm. um, medications. And there could be patient preferences with respect to um, different kinds of psychotherapy. And so all of that kind of matters and, and should be taken into context. That said, um, for treatment-resistant depression, which is basically people that um, aren't benefiting from the first-line treatments, th that combination is typically recommended. I think that that is, this is what makes psych so complicated for, for us providers too. And for the patients is that, you know, for us, we have so much data with 
lipids, for example. Like you give a statin, we know we're going to see a, a certain dose of the statin is going to give us a 50% reduction of LDL in this much time, et cetera. With psych, it's far more complex and nuanced and not always linear. And so the issue with that is that leaves this opening for people to come in and say, oh no, you don't need medication. You don't need therapy. You just need to follow this, you know, um, whatever diet plan, or you just need to follow this exercise plan. And we'll get into, there is some, um, you know, positive data for exercise and mental health. And of course, everyone who's listening to this podcast knows that I care about nutrition, but I, I do think the unfortunate part is that this leaves this hold this area for people to come in and take advantage of the people who are struggling. Absolutely. And that hole is taken advantage of by people that pseudoscience apologists or wellness influencers, they, they look for that so that they can kind of sneak in to do scientific therapies. And I think that's a horrible thing because even in the context of evidence-based medicine, which is that delicate balance between the evidence-based clinical judgment and patient preferences and values, even in that context, it still remains unethical to recommend pseudoscientific treatments to kind of sneak in whatever you want mm -hmm. to do. We're, that's baked into our codes of ethics and our legal standards of practice. It's philosophically predicated on this evidence-based medicine um, backdrop or philosophy. So Yes, it's, it sucks that we don't have perfect treatments. Um, at the same time, it doesn't mean we need to fill those gaps or those holes with alternative medicine garbage and bullshit, essentially. I totally, I could not agree more. Um, it's that gray area that is the breeding ground for predatory providers to take advantage of patients. So here's one of the biggest uh, misconceptions, I think, on social media. You know, they consider people in the psych field to be, oh, they're just pushing medication. They're just pushing SSRIs and SNRIs. First, can you explain what an SSRI or an SNRI is? And then can you explain why you're not just pushing them and why it is a patient-centered approach and why EBM is not just, you're not just a pill for prescriber. You guys aren't just pill pushers, why there's a method to this treatment regimen. Absolutely. And, and I want to clarify, too, because some viewers may not understand differences between, let's say, clinical psychologists and, right. and psychiatrists and stuff. And so um, I don't, as a clinical psychologist, the vast majority of us, there's some exceptions, but the vast majority don't prescribe right, right. Um, psychiatric medications. But you work in a multidisciplinary practice with psychiatrists and you're Absolutely. Very yeah, yeah. In, in my clinic, in our clinic, every patient that comes to us is attached to a a, a psychotherapist, which is me, and a consulting Brilliant. psychiatrist. So Brilliant. every patient has us as a team. So we are always doing that. And mm -hmm. yeah, SSRIs are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Um, SNRIs, serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. So without getting into the pharmacology of it, they're, they're basically um, changing dynamics of the amount of serotonin norepinephrine that are produced um, in synapses, which, which are in our neurons. Um, importantly, the evidence base says that they have modest or moderate effect sizes. And so that's why we would kind of recommend them in the context of, so you mentioned kind of pill pushers and- I know I lump you into pill pushers. The reason being is that even though you're doing therapy and non-medical intervention, I've seen you be called a pill pusher on social media, which is laughable, which is laughable. 
So you, um, just because you follow evidence-based medicine and you work in these multidisciplinary groups where you're giving patients the best standard of care, you still get called a pill pusher. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I've been, I can't even Me tell too, you the, the amount Me of too. times. Yeah, we're, we're all pharma shills. Yeah. <laughs> we're all shilling for vaccines. Like, it oh, doesn't even make sense. Anyway, <laughs> yes, I mean, if, if someone is a pill pusher, they're doing it wrong. They're not mm -hmm. practicing competent, ethical, safe care. And to be frank, the, and I've said this a lot, the, the psychiatrists that I work with are the opposite of pill pushers. We Amazing. don't, none of them do that. The, the, ones, the ones that I work with, uh, you know, they'll, they'll preach the slogan skills over pills. Like we're always kind of trying to preach that kind of mantra. And at the same time, not stigmatizing psychiatric medication, because the way to think about them is that they're one tool in our toolbox for how we address mental health. So when I go into a co-session with a patient and a psychiatrist, the last thing that we're doing is pill pushing it. And psychiatrists, the ones that I work with, will be very explicit about that. So they will say, we're not, like I've heard them say it countless times, I'm not pushing meds. And, and patients get that and they appreciate it. And that's part of developing a therapeutic alliance and a therapeutic relationship with people. And at the same time, asking them, what do you think? Do you want to try this? Here's informed consent on the benefits and the harms. And that's how we go about doing things. And then we have regular meetings, we're monitoring symptoms, we're monitoring side effects. And that's how you do evidence-based practice, which involves kind of shared decision-making on that front. Um, and sometimes it's super important to have um, medications, especially when you have people that are really in the midst of severe, severe depression, when it's hard for them to even engage in therapy to begin with. They can't get here. They can't get to the hospital. They can't do any of the, the quote unquote homework that's sort of involved in psychotherapy work because they can't literally can't get out of bed and they can't move. And so sometimes SSRIs can be helpful for that, but even for people with moderate depression too. So I, I understand there is kind of that gray zone, but I think it kind of leads me to another area, if, if you don't mind, which is yeah. kind of what you're talking about. You talk about that gap in medicine and gap in mental health being exploited. And one of the things that I've been quite vocal about and I've been writ I've written about it is sort of this anti-psychiatry disinformation campaign, yes. um, which, which is a thing. It's, it's similar to an anti-vaccine movement insofar as they're really about moralistic criticisms and basically pseudoscientific cherry-picking anti-science kind of um, ways of approaching a mainstream discipline. And it's very stigmatizing and it compromises patient care. Anti-psychiatry, I mean, the movement dated back to at least the, the 60s. It was a bit more organized then. Now it's not really organized at all, but it kind of flourishes. The same debunked tropes over and over flourish kind of on social media and so that's kind of the things that that we want to rally against because for example some of those tropes are mental illness doesn't exist um, if it does exist psychiatric medications are are all harmful they don't help at all and it's just ludicrous and it usually comes from um, people again it's part of it's in the wellness and the alternative medicine industry but then part of it is just I hate to say it, but there's even psychologists in my own profession that kind of have a turf war um, with psychiatry, especially in the UK. And so um, it's an awful thing to see because the vast majority of psychologists have wonderful working relationships with psychiatrists because that's what's in the best interest of patient care. And that's, what's, that's what happens when you actually look at the evidence base. I think that that's the important point you make here too, is that being evidence-based 
And giving our patients, what's most important is giving our patients the best available treatment options and letting them decide. And to me, and I think it sounds like to you, that means giving them the options of all the tools we have in the toolbox available to them and seeing what works for them and allowing them to navigate with you what works best for them. Perfectly. Yeah. Perfectly well said. You know, that shared decision making is built into evidence-based medicine and offering patients a variety of tools. And the, the other truth is that it doesn't mean that we're recommending pseudoscience and pseudoscientific therapies. What are your thoughts? One of our listeners had sent in, uh, I actually had this common theme when I asked what people, uh, what, what people were wondering and what their questions were about, um, specifically about mental health. Some people had mentioned, you know, they go to their primary care doctor, they mentioned, you know, some depressive symptoms, and they're just prescribed an SSRI right off the bat. They're not offered or referred to mental health therapy. You know, I think that that can kind of be sometimes on us as physicians to do a better job with that as well. Because I always like to say, listen, traditional healthcare, especially in the United States, is not without its problems. Overall, I think that we have obviously in the US, we have lots of constraints in the health system and primary care providers, especially. I have so much respect for them. They're so busy. So I don't even want to say, you know, blame them for this. But one of the most common things, you know, that I got, the question was, is that I went to my PCP. And they say, oh, and I, I, like, I mentioned that I've been depressed. I'm having trouble sleeping. They mentioned that they're having, um, you know, some difficulty eating and getting their tasks done. It's interfering with function. They may certainly need an SSRI, um, but they feel that, it, you know, some people express that they feel that that's just prescribed to them. And then nothing else is kind of talked about and they're not sent to therapy. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Because I do think that that is something that as physicians in general, we can do better about too. I absolutely agree and, and empathize with, with people in that position. And it, it basically speaks to the issue of over-diagnosis and over-medication. And that is a very real issue. And that is a gap in medicine, right? Again, a gap that shouldn't be exploited by pseudoscience and other Agreed. kind of bunk. But, and sometimes anti-psychiatry, people will use that to say, look, it's all harmful. No, it is a gap that we need to improve. And any evidence-based mental health professional will tell you the same. Yeah, we don't want overdiagnosis and overmedication. And you're right. And we, we see that here at our clinic as well, where there, where there is sort of perhaps prescribing an SSRI um, where it's not indicated, um, especially what we see in our clinic is prescribing, say, benzodiazepines um, where it's not indicated. So benzodiazepines are anti-anxiety. Uh, medications essentially for people with anxiety, but they have a high addiction potential and, and a high physiological dependence potential. And so those folks, unfortunately, end up coming to our clinic and we have to end up deprescribing or taking people off. And so it's certainly an issue. And like you, I absolutely love family physicians, primary care providers, because they have so much on their plate and they're so, so busy much. and they deal with everything, everything, which they can't even fathom. So I get it. And so it's not on them. It, it is more on treatment models. So maybe 
I don't know what, I don't have all the solutions, but better mental health training, better training and be able, being able to um, do differential diagnosis to see someone actually meeting a bona fide psychiatric disorder and does need an SSRI um, and, and having more time with patients. And that's another sort of talking point that alternative medicine gurus will use. They'll say, well, naturopaths and, you know, um, every other alternative medicine practitioner, they succeed because they have more time with patients. We all want more time with patients and they agree that's a good thing. But what alternative medicine practitioners do is they spend more time with patients and end up giving them fake diagnoses and, and fake cures versus we want evidence-based professionals to have more time with patients so that we can get it right and mitigate. Totally. And so do you think it's reasonable to say, so say if someone sees a physician and they feel like they just had an SSRI thrown at them and it was kind of just not, they, they don't really know what to make of it. Do you think it's reasonable for someone to say, okay, well, I'm going to just seek out a psychologist and just start therapy anyway, just to see if, uh, and get that kind of full assessment if they're just seeing their PCP to just seek it out on their own for a, for a, an, a general you know, opinion from someone else? Absolutely. I think that it's a wonderful thing to empower uh, patients in that way. I think the onus, unfortunately, ha it goes both ways, right? Like the, the ethical obligation of healthcare professionals and treatment providers is to, again, align with their codes of ethics, ethics and legal standards of practice to try to ensure they're practicing in the most safe, ethical and competent way possible. But like you said, there's variability in training, there's variability in models and time spent. And so unfortunately, the reality means that patients do have to advocate for themselves. And yes, if they're, if they're getting kind of SSRIs thrown at them without an adequate rationale, without an adequate diagnosis and, and discussion about the informed consent and why they're going on this treatment, then certainly I think that patients should either seek second opinions, seek Bonafide mental health professionals, like, like clinical psychologists or psychiatrists, sometimes and clinical social workers, to get kind of those second opinions and and maybe just get a referral from their their family physician to maybe a more specialized mental health clinic if if the medic if the treatment plan is to go on psychiatric medications. That's really helpful. Okay, so diving into your expertise, so what are the some of the evidence based ways in which therapy can help with depression? And what kind of different therapies are there? I love that question. And again, it's so loaded. So yeah, I, don't I know, even know where it's to start. like a huge umbrella. <laughs> yeah. I know. But it's so it's so cool. So I guess I'd start by saying there's there's there was a paper in 2018 by Mike and Baum and, and Scott Scott Lillianfeld. Scott Lillianfeld was a clinical psychologist who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. And he's one of my my professional hero, so to speak. He was a anti-pseudoscience misinformation slayer before the time of social media, essentially. I mean, he's still around, but he didn't really have a social media presence, but he was doing it in articles and books and kind of uh, academically. Anyways, there's this 2018 paper where they essentially said, this was in 2018, they said there's 600 brands of psychotherapy that they estimated growing on a monthly basis. So what the hell are we to do with that? And so the majority of that, I would say, is bunk. A lot of those, that 600 whatever brands of psychotherapy, the vast majority is bunk. And then the other vast majority is probably repackaged evidence-based principles, which means things that we know work. So exposing people to fears, involuntary 
um, safe kind of ways. There's specific strategies of doing that or fostering therapeutic alliances with people or ongoing reality testing. These are kind of various principles that have different language depending on the treatment modality that you're coming from. So number one, there's a whole bunch of psychotherapies out there, some evidence-based and a whole lot not. And so when you look at the depression guidelines, for example, so kind of back to uh, the APA guidelines uh, for depression uh, and, and similarly for anxiety in a lot of ways. But again, anxiety is a, is an umbrella term, which we can go to later. Uh, but for depression, a lot of the evidence-based psychotherapies would be various forms of cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's cognitive therapy, there's behavior therapy, there's cognitive behavior therapy. Um, there's, there's forms that come from slightly different traditions. But again, if I think good clinicians, if they do them right, a lot of them kind of bleed together. But there's things called psychodynamic therapies, which are evidence-based uh, interpersonal therapies. And that's what you'll see in the depression guidelines. And there's an interesting term, which has been in the psychotherapy research literature for almost a century. It's called the dodo bird verdict, dodo bird verdict. And essentially, it's this idea that various psychotherapies are all equal in effectiveness. So that CBT is as effective as psychodynamic, which is as effective as interpersonal therapy. And it's an ongoing debate in the literature. And in short, there's, there, are, there is veracity to it. There, are, there is some truth to that claim, but there's also some falsehoods to that claim. So the truth is that, yes, in, if you look at the APA guidelines, they recommend psychotherapy or pharmacological therapy. And at first, the psychotherapy that they recommend could be CBT or, or say psychodynamic therapy. And it doesn't really matter. That's kind of where that, that uh, judgment is kind of built in and that kind of shared decision-making. So you can kind of interchange with them because if you look at the, the evidence base, they are similar in effectiveness, for example, with depression. That said, with the dodo bird effect, not all psychotherapies are equal. For example, that 600 brand of God knows what, you know, who, who knows what some of those therapies are. A lot of them are unstudied. A lot of them are probably scientifically implausible and a lot of them are kind of bunk. And then, of course, there's harmful therapies too because ther psychotherapy is not completely innocuous. I'm going to have a whole chapter on that kind of devoted to our pseudoscience and clinical psych book, but some of the stuff that sticks out that people are probably familiar with, probably the biggest one is conversion therapy, which tries to can change someone's sexual orientation, which is just insane. Insane. It's absolutely insane. And, it, and it's actually illegal now in Canada. I don't know about the US, but they, it's, it's banned. Uh, th and there's, there's other harmful therapies like critical incident stress debriefing, which is sort of something that you do with uh, first responders trying to basically immediately debrief with them in a kind of a structured way that's been found to be actually harmful long term and so all that to say that you know psychotherapy is not innocuous either it can be helpful and it can be harmful and it is important to look at the evidence base and so one of the one that that under I, my you know small understanding of of psych that i i thought i read has some interesting data is cognitive behavioral therapy. And maybe I'm biased because I did all my medical training, my medical school, my residency, and my fellowship in um, Philadelphia, where it was near the Beck Institute, where they do like all of the CBT training. So we had lots of CBT guru uh, psychologists nearby. And I saw this is anecdotal. And so obviously, this is not um, based in evidence, but I saw a lot of my patients improve with these really robust CBT treatments. So can you explain CBT and is my, is my impression of it accurate or am I, am I just uh, 
biased. Is, <laughs> no, you're not biased. It is accurate. CBT is, is one of the most evidence-based treatments we have for a variety of, of disorders, so depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, addictive disorders, which is also what we deal with here. Yes, and you mentioned the Beck Institute because, you know, CBT was developed by Aaron T. Beck, who was uh, a physician, probably around the 60s. So CBT kind of has its roots in, in the 50s and 60s, kind of in behaviorism and cognitive therapy or, or cognitive psychology. Beck himself, you know, tra traces it back to psychoanalysis as well, kind of some Freudian roots, and even way back to the Stoics, which were some philosophers, which is Stoicism, which is kind of the pursuit of knowledge. Can you explain what CBT is for anyone that's not familiar? Yeah, totally. It's also one of those things that it shouldn't be an umbrella term, but it's it's come to mean an umbrella term because so many people say they're doing CBT. I've had patients come to me and I'll ask them, have you had CBT? And they'll say, oh yeah. And then I'll ask them to explain it to me and they don't know what the hell it is because they've been, it's there's variability in training or maybe they got it from someone that doesn't quite know it. And so anyways, CBT is essentially the idea in short, I'll, I'll kind of simplify this because it, it's it's there's many advanced branches of it, but it, it's in short, it's the idea that our experiences can be broken down. It wants us to slow down and break down our experiences into three kind of domains, which is kind of a, a traditional triangle of CBT. So we have thoughts, we have um, feelings and sensations, and then we have behaviors. And so what I mean by breaking down our experiences, if someone is in the midst of a depressive episode, say. We'll ask them, I'll ask my patients, how do you know when you're depressed? And then they'll start telling me, they'll say, well, I start to feel guilty and I feel sad. So that's kind of the feelings domain. And then they'll say, and then I withdraw and I isolate and I don't answer the phone and I, I start missing work. Sometimes I drink, sometimes I use weed or other drugs. Those are behaviors, right? That, that's the behavior domain. So you kind of isolate and you do kind of behaviors. And then they'll tell me kind of thoughts that they're having. Things won't ever get better. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. Life sucks. Life would be better without me. It, it can go to some pretty dark places. And so that's kind of the, the triangle. So CBT is trying to help patients understand that their thoughts, their feelings, and their behaviors are all intricately connected. And if we slow down and break down our experiences in those ways, we can take advantage of that system because it's a system. All of those elements interact. And so the C of CBT, C just means cognitive, which means exploring and challenging our thoughts in more helpful, balanced, realistic ways. It's not about rainbows and unicorns and putting rose-tinted glasses on. It's more about trying to take biased lenses off and see the world in a more kind of realistic way. Um, but granted, that's kind of, that's really hard to do, but that's, that's the essence of cognitive therapy. And the idea is that if we can try to challenge the way that we think, it's going to change how we feel and what we do and that whole experience of, of depression. Similarly, so that's the C of CBT. We can also intervene at the level of B, which is kind of the behavior. So again, this can be hard to do, but it's, it's different. So it's literally putting our shoes on, getting out the door, activating ourselves behaviorally, doing different things, a variety of different things. And if we change our behavior, the idea is that that'll change how we think and how we feel and the whole experience. So that's an oversimplified, intuitive kind of way of thinking about it. The hard part, rightly 
and which patients will ask is, well, what the hell do I do with that? How do I do CBT? And that's kind of, um, there's a variety of techniques and skills that a, a skilled therapist will co-explore with someone, fostering that therapeutic relationship and delivering those skills in a helpful kind of way. So that that in a nutshell is kind of what CBT is. And then of course, we can have those advanced branches of CBT. So for example, with depression, there's kind of an advanced branch of behavior therapy called behavioral activation, um, which is basically trying to increase a person's sense of reinforcement or pleasure that they get from the environment and their sense of mastery. Um, or the fancy term is self-efficacy, which just means increasing someone's confidence in their ability to do things. When we make people feel, when they can do behaviors that make them feel more confident and that they enjoy, then that's one of the ways to start to get out of that depression. But of course, it's a double-edged sword because by definition, depression, someone who's depressed has no motivation, no energy, and they don't want to move. So it's hard to get going on those things. And that's why it needs to be skillfully introduced and skillfully tailored to a particular patient to do that therapy. So that's an advanced kind of branch of CBT, that behavioral activation for depression. And then there's an, another very strongly evidence-based treatment called exposure therapy, which is something fantastic for a variety of anxiety disorders and even things that were once considered anxiety disorders, but now they're kind of their own beasts, so to speak. So for example, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, and obsessive compulsive disorder. Wow. Fascinating. That's so helpful. That is really helpful. And so one of the other questions we got a lot of was, how does someone know whether they have true depression and whether they should be seeking out mental health support versus it's just kind of, you know, a transient sort of shift in life events, et cetera? Totally. And it's a really great question. And there's even a psychiatric disorder called adjustment disorder or adjustments disorders, which are sort of depressive symptoms showing up in the context of a life stressor, like, you know, death of a loved one or a relationship loss or whatever it is. And those depressive symptoms continue pervasively beyond the point of kind of being transient. So I, I think the specifier is beyond three months or so. And so it's, it's a fascinating question. It kind of gets at the root of what is, how do we define psychopathology in general? But for the everyday person, what I typically recommend is it never hurts to seek help. And so mm -hmm. it's not so much perhaps the depressive symptoms that someone's experiencing. I, I think a good indicator for people or a red flag is looking at their functioning. So if because of those depressive symptoms, if you're feeling sad and you, you don't you're not enjoying things that you normally do, which is normal after a life stressor. If that starts getting in the way of you doing life, you know, doing your responsibilities, whatever that is, childcare, friendships, uh, jobs, schooling, if it starts to really get in the way, that's called functional impairment. Um, and that's your sign that you probably should seek help because you don't want to go further down that, that hole. And it's never too early to seek help is what you're saying, Jim. Absolutely not. I mean, of course, there's the caveat, which we talked about, which is the overdiagnosis and overmedication. Right. And so, you know, yes, if you have a, a relationship breakup, I'm just using it because it's an easy example, but you don't want to immediately, if, if you break up with your spouse, your, your partner, you probably don't want to immediately go and get an SSRI for that because right. that makes sense. You're supposed to feel depressed and, you know, see, see if there's other ways to kind of manage that. 
And if it's not, there's no shame in getting help from that, including pharmacological interventions. And, and people can be on them short term as well. Usually depressive medications or SSRIs take about two to four weeks anyway to kick in. So it's not going to have that immediate relief of symptoms. But um, I guess I would say it's not... It's a fine balance between a wait and see, and it's never too early to seek help. And and that all that to be considered, it's also imperative to use social support. Lean on your friends, lean on your family members, challenge thoughts, because it's very normal for people to think that I'm a burden and I don't want to burden people by reaching out, but maybe you would do that for them. And it's it's basically important to kind of nip these things in the bud and prevent them from kind of turning into a full-blown psychiatric disorder, which we don't want to happen. Say, for example, uh, someone listening, yeah, they go through a breakup, they're experiencing their normal, you know, cycle of emotions, feeling, you know, sadness and anxiety, et cetera. And in the beginning, if they are having an interruption in function, it doesn't seem like that's pathological. That could just be obviously normal sort of response. Is there a time cutoff of an impairment of function after something acute like a breakup in which they might benefit from more advanced kind of treatment? It's a good question. And yeah, different disorders will have you know, different psychiatric disorders will have different criteria for that. And, and to be honest, I think some of it's pretty arbitrary. It's just sort of trying to, if it's persisting, if those symptoms are, say, persisting beyond three months mm. or six months and just kind of checking in with yourself on those kind of time frames, do you notice a difference between the first week versus three months versus six months? If nothing's changed, you want to get kind of help. Right. Yeah. Especially because, you know, things, you know, when people go through life changes like a uh, death in the family or, you know, uh, any kind of loss or loss of a job, like you were explaining or loss of a relationship. Um, it is, I think it's great that you mentioned that it's, it's normal to feel those feelings and to feel sad and that we can't make a normal grieving process, uh, a pathology, you know, but I think that that's an important key that you brought on is that an extended loss of functioning in, in normal life and, um, an interruption in normal life is, is something that is a red flag to just kind of seek some extra help. And it's never too early to, to get some mental health guidance. Absolutely. I think, again, the hallmark of when to seek treatment is that impaired functioning. And again, it's kind of never too early. I think every single person can benefit in general from psychotherapy and having someone um, have evidence-based treatment with them, whether it's sort of for prevention or intervention. Um, and that's a, that's a personal choice. Absolutely. Okay. Well, moving on to some of the lifestyle interventions for something like depression. What is the data show on exercise and depression? Because there's lots of headlines on it. And I'm never going to uh, imagine that I can interpret the evidence in, in, uh, in psych accurately. It is not my expertise. So I'm going to defer to you. What are your thoughts? That's a tall order for me to <laughs> decipher that literature, but I thank you for that. Um, you know, exercise, you and I talked a bit about that before. So both you and I hate pseudoscience. We harp on it all the time. And one of the hallmarks of pseudoscience is claiming that something is a panacea. So it can, meaning it can treat everything. You see that in the cannabis world. It can treat cancer and COVID and AIDS and God knows what. And, and so that's all kind of a hallmark of a, of a pseudoscience. That said, I think exercise is one of those things that is a real panacea. And I would say that, I want to qualify that statement, but I think it's one of those things that in general, it's good for all 
overall health, mental and physical health. And that's not to mean that it's the only tool in the toolbox and that it's the be all end all. I just think that um, that it's it's positive for overall health. And that is what the data says when you look at depression. Um, I think there was a, a recent Cochrane review. I don't know how recent it was, but there was a Cochrane review that basically said it was small to medium effect sizes for exercise on depressive symptoms. So that's a great thing. So I said I wanted to qualify it. And the reason for that is just like you said, it can be sort of abused, I guess, by alternative medicine practitioners, or it's sort of a launching pad for patient blaming. And we don't want to get into that because like I said, there's, well, there's a difference between mental health and mental illness. So when someone is in, in the height of a depressive episode, they have severe depression, they can't get out of bed, it's hard to brush their teeth, they can't shower, they're not going to run a marathon, right? And so, and of course they wouldn't because they can't. And so we don't want to patient blame folks for that. And so when, when people come to me, of course, we're going to be recommending exercise, but it needs to be very, very tailored and delivered in a very delicate and balanced way. And probably part of that behavioral activation component of therapy, which I mentioned, which is kind of CBT. So the exercise that we're going to be recommending is going to be exercise tailored to the patient. So the, the, any kind of movement that they enjoy that will motivate them and reinforce them to continue to do it, and any kind of exercise or movement that will increase their self-efficacy or their confidence, they can slowly start to do it. But yeah, there's going to be nuances there. And it's another thing that kind of, while I'm on the tangent, that drives me nuts about that alternative medicine community, because they'll try to claim exercise as their own, almost as if it comes under their purview. And it doesn't. I've been, quote unquote, prescribing exercise for over a decade, which all evidence-based health professions do. And that's the downfall, or I guess the the slimy propaganda tactic of integrative medicine is that they try to integrate what works, evidence-based treatment, which is exercise. They'll, they'll throw that in and claim that we don't do it, which we do. And then they'll sprinkle in your energy medicine or your naturopathy or whatever God knows else bunk. So true. And that's why I think it's so important, um, you know, when when we discuss in the podcast, like when we're talking about cardiovascular disease, we'll talk about, you know, lipids and we're talking about statins, but we're also talking about diet. We're talking about exercise. Of course, you know, our cardiology guidelines recommend first line recommendation is nutrition and exercise and lifestyle change for every cardiovascular disease. Um, and so I'm so happy to hear you endorsing exercise and the data for exercise in um, depression and certain uh, mood disorders. And you're right, it's a delicate balance because uh, it's frustrating from a patient shaming um, standpoint if someone is abusing that data and saying, well, just go exercise and eat well and your depression will go away. Obviously, as you mentioned, it's not that simple. But at the same token, I think it's so important to emphasize that evidence-based care includes lifestyle intervention and can include exercise for someone who is at that point where they can exercise. And also, I think in many ways, it gives hope, I think, uh, for patients listening that, wow, there is some positive data for exercise and for depression. And so it gives them maybe a bit of hope that there's something that they can do that um, can can help maybe alleviate some symptoms or make them feel better, give them a little bit more autonomy and a sense of control. And so I think that there's, you know, a lot of positivity to it. And I think it's important that 
you know, you're emphasizing that we are not, you know, alternative health providers. You are obviously recommending that the most science evidence-based care and treatment, and that includes lifestyle and exercise. Absolutely. I've been running the same group therapy group for over five years, and that's a topic every week. Amazing. Yes. So it drives me nuts when you get people online who are calling us saying, you never, you guys don't, you know, talk about lifestyle or exercise. That's embedded in evidence-based practice. It's incredible. Next up is anxiety. And so I know that this is another going to be umbrella kind of nuanced thing, but um, if you could kind of just give everyone um, an overview about anxiety disorders in general and the guideline treatment for that as well. And I know that's a, that's a tall order of a question. Yes, (laughs) but my pleasure. I'll try to, I'll try to keep it succinct. So Well, just like depression, anxiety symptoms are a very normal part of human experience. We get anxious about things. It's sort of a future-oriented response. That's it's it's protective in some ways. We become anxious when we perceive a threat, right? And that we evolved that way for good reason. If you see a snake around, you should be anxious about it because if you don't, we'll die. And so our ancestors, the ones who were anxious about snakes, they survived, and so we kind of survived over time by having an anxiety system built into our brain that looks for perceived threats. In anxiety disorders, that perceived threat is out of proportion, and it's pervasive, and it's everywhere. So in the mind of someone, this is a crude way of saying it, but in the mind of someone with an anxiety disorder, giving a speech, or even just going out to dinner, or leaving the house is a giant snake. Right. Because that it's it's kind of it's symbolic of kind of a yeah. threat. So anyways, the, the threat system is kind of out of proportion. And so it's normal for us to be anxious about things. Again, like depression, when it becomes problematic or turns into a psychiatric disorder is when it really starts to impair functioning, when it causes significant distress and functioning and anxiety can show up in different ways. So you can have different um, different anxiety symptoms. So. For example, there are anxiety disorders, there's different breeds of them, so to speak. So there's social anxiety disorder, where the anxiety is really, really about being socially anxious. So you can't make phone calls, you can't leave voicemails, you can't go to the mall, you can't get out. Basically, a lot of uh, fear of judgments and being, um, just being in social situations. There is um, generalized anxiety disorder, which is perhaps one of the ones that's most conflated with when someone says anxiety. So generalized anxiety disorder is what it sounds like. It's anxiety generalized to everything. So they identify as worriers. They just worry about everything. The worrying is excessive and it's out of control and they just can't, they can't stop it. Uh, and I think I mentioned that there are other kinds of what were considered anxiety disorders because they share similarities, but now they're kind of their own class of disorders, at least according to the DSM, which is the, which is the, um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So there's, there's trauma-based kind of disorders, so like post-traumatic stress disorder, and then there's obsessive-compulsive-related disorders. So that's where OCD would um, fall into. And similar to depression, evidence-based treatment, unfortunately, is similar. And so when you look at the guidelines, some of the, the clinical guidelines will be more focused on particular disorders than others. So you have, you know, say, social anxiety disorder guidelines and then generalized anxiety disorder guidelines. And uh, for example, when you look at, say, GAD, 
you'll see similar things um, to depression. So you offer evidence-based psychotherapy, which is CBT is probably for GAD, CBT is first line treatment. And then again, you're, you're kind of second generation antidepressants, which is your SSRIs and your SNRIs. And I believe the efficacy or the effectiveness is similar to depression. So you get kind of a similar response rate, you get kind of moderate effects. And probably that, again, don't quote me on the stats, but maybe half respond, half don't. And so that suggests that a medication switch or a therapy switch is needed. Or again, maybe it's the training or, or different fit with therapists. There, there could be a lot of variables that contribute to why someone's not responding. Fascinating. Yeah, that's quite a large umbrella under the anxiety category. So it sounds like really individualized, which seems like all of psychiatry and psychology generally super individualized approach. And so for anxiety, so similar medications recommended, similar treatment approach, um, and similar kind of methods for, for treatment. Yeah, like the, the similar models, like, you know, so for example, if you take a cognitive behavioral approach, the the models will be the theoretical models will be similar, but the techniques look quite different. So I think I mentioned exposure therapy as being an, an advanced branch of CBT, which is first line treatment um, for a number of disorders. And exposure therapy is is incredible. I guess how to put it in a nutshell, it basically, what I tell patients is it literally involves facing your fears, which is a scary thing to think about, but in a very structured, voluntary, safe, baby step kind of way. And so you can almost imagine, I guess, to help people conceptualize it, Um, So a a specific phobia is a kind of anxiety disorder. So someone could have a fear of snakes. All things considered equal, if if we don't think of things like comorbidities, which is other kinds of psychiatric disorders. But if you're just treating a specific phobia, you could probably treat a snake phobia in an hour, or it's kind of been done, depending on patient characteristics. So what that would look like with exposure therapy is, let's say someone has a phobia, they can't even look at a picture of a snake without having a panic attack or without having intense anxiety. So you basically, well, you have to develop a therapeutic alliance with someone. You have to explain the rationale of CBT. You have to explain why it works and kind of what happens in the brain. And, and then you get people to voluntarily expose themselves to stimuli that elicit an anxiety response so that their brain learns how to cope with it over time. So for someone with a snake phobia, it may be looking at a picture of a snake for 10 minutes or maybe a week or maybe a month. And you do that repeatedly until your brain gets used to it, so to speak. I mean, there's, there's different languaging for it. And then once you do that, you, you step up in your hierarchy. And now you go to um, watching YouTube videos of it. And then after you, know, you get used to conquering that, then you bring in a toy snake in the room and you, you manage that. And then eventually you get a snake in the room, but you're 10 feet away from it. And then you're five feet and then you're two feet and then it's on you. And then, so that's kind of uh, a nutshell way of explaining what exposure therapy is. Wow. The same, and the same principle can be applied to trauma. So you're, you're being exposed to traumatic memories. It's a bit more complicated than that. Oh, it is complicated than that, but it's the same principle. And the same thing with, with kind of OCD, because with OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, you, we would do exposure therapy where we expose someone to a stimuli triggers intrusive thoughts and 
memories or whatever it is. And then someone with OCD will want to do a ritual to get rid of that, to make them feel better. So maybe they're compulsively hand-washing and they're checking stoves or they're mentally counting. And in OCD, you have to help patients find a way to not do that neutralizing or not do that ritual. So that evidence-based treatment is called exposure and response prevention, which is very specific to OCD and it's first-line treatment. That's fascinating. And I think that it's also important for people to hear and listen that there's so many options and that if uh, I think that one point that really seems clear here is that if one option doesn't work for you, whether it's one specific therapist, one specific physician or one specific therapeutic technique, don't give up that there's many options. Totally. So well said. That just captures it perfectly. Well, thank you so much for for joining us today. I took so much of your time, but this was such a phenomenal deep dive. Thank you for demystifying all things mental health. We could have talked for 17 hours because there is so much nuance on this topic, but thank you. And let everyone know where can they find you on social media to learn more from you. Thank you. I had so much fun. This was an honor for me. I'm I'm a big fan of yours and oh, and, nice. and a friend. And I just I I had so much fun being here. So thank you for having me kind of uh, pontificate about this stuff. I yes. guess. So <laughs> thank you. Yeah, social media. I mean, I'm I'm trying to do my best on Twitter. That's probably the best place to find me, which is uh, at my first and last name, which is Jonathan Stea. I, I want to plug scienceupfirst.com as well, because that's our Canadian anti-social media, anti-misinformation campaign, which is doing such fabulous, fabulous work on debunking misinformation, again, in the context of COVID-19, but it also we're expanding our purview beyond COVID-19 to other areas of health, including mental health. We need you on Instagram. I'm on Instagram. But I know we need, you, we need you posting this on Instagram. Instagram's like the wild, wild west and now TikTok of misinformation, but I still haven't dipped my toes in there either. So, Yes, I, some, I sometimes look and then get scared and go back to Twitter and then that's not much better either. So I don't even know where to go. Well, thank you so much. We'll link to uh, both your information for social and science up first on our show notes. Thanks again, Jonathan. Thank you so much, Danielle. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. I would love to keep bringing you all the latest health and wellness information and misinformation to debunk. So please do me a quick favor and leave a five-star rating review and share with a friend. Make sure to leave a comment about which wellness fad you'd like debunk next and I'll get to the bottom of it. Follow me on Instagram at MD and our podcast page at Wellness Fact Versus Fiction and be sure to tune in next week.